Profane Faith Fam. I give you GOP members on Donald Trump. I want to talk to the Trump supporters for a minute. I don't know who you are, and I don't know why you like this guy. Whatever he does, he accuses everyone else of doing. The man cannot tell the truth, but he combines it with being a narcissist. A narcissist at a level I don't think this country's ever seen. And my concern is that he would grab up that power and really uh, treat the country as sort of his uh, little bully fiefdom. Donald Trump is everything I taught my children not to do in kindergarten. He's been exploiting working Americans for 40 years. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. He says he's for the little guy, but he's actually built a lot of his businesses on the backs of the little guy. You know, Donald Trump the other day said that, it, quote, if he tells a soldier to commit a war crime, the soldier will just go do it. And I don't think Donald Trump uh, uh, has, has even read the Constitution, knows what's in the Constitution. A toxic mix of demagoguery and mean-spiritedness and nonsense. I just cannot support Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a delusional narcissist in an orange-faced windbag. Donald Trump is a con artist. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth. I think he's a kook. I think he's crazy. I think he's unfit for office. Huh. I see. a hard time for being white and being American and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Profane Faith fam, what's going on here in your part of the woods and the area of life that is happening? <laughs> what's going on, y'all? What's going on? Um, here we are, another week moving into the middle of January. We got uh this week, if you're listening, you know, of course, we got uh, the MLK holiday. It's live and in charge. Um, it's matter of fact, it's today. As a matter of fact, uh, well, if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, remember, if you subscribe on SoundCloud, you can get episodes a day early on Sunday. And um, if you listen to, you know, if you're subscribing just on any other place, uh, you know, episodes come out on Monday. So 
Um, yeah, just FYI. But yeah, if you're listening to this any other place other than SoundCloud, um, it's it's MLK's birthday, and hopefully you are up and at them doing something, uh, something that uh, is reflective of the time and the day uh, that we're in. I mean, you know, it's difficult to it's it's difficult to reflect on somebody who is known as a hero, is known as a a, a national right, a national figure. But in reality, those of us who have studied his life, who've walked in his steps, have done any kind of, you know, work similar to what he was doing, uh, already know that, you know, this uh, this this type of, uh, you know, this type of persona, this type of figure, you know, he wasn't liked. <laughs> he wasn't liked. And we've I've talked about it a lot on this show about MLK um, and just his legacy, because his legacy was something, uh, you know, that at the time right at the time there people they didn't like that fool <laughs> they didn't like that negro because he was disrupting white supremacy he was disrupting the white industrial complex um and it, he was not a loved man and i i've i've shared this before on the show but I, it bears noting again you know growing up in a small southern town in texas i um you know mlk was hated in fact, my principal, Harold Miller, uh, he's he told, you know, he said, I remember when it was became a national holiday and he was like, there be, I will not celebrate any commie nigger, you know, in this country. You know, he was a former Klansman himself. And, um, you know, and of course, uh, you know, again, I've shared the story before, but, you know, you ask, well, how I know that? Because he had his robe and his hood still in the glass and case shroud uh, at the school okay and so you know he didn't we didn't we didn't take the the school did not take a day off on mlk he you know he saw him as a communist he saw him as a troublemaker and um yeah it was yeah it was it really wasn't until i got into like my uh, uh, high school that mlk became an actual you know official holiday and of course we know that you know, there have been states like arizona that said you know we ain't gonna celebrate this day um you know public enemy had a whole song about that so you know there's stuff out there that again if you're paying attention yo this stuff is is for real man whiteness hates and despises uh blackness uh and that's just kind of been the fact for about 400 years and yes that doesn't mean that all white people are that way and remember whiteness is an ideological structure doesn't isn't so much just about white people um right because you know somebody like a ben carson can't embrace whiteness um and you know hate his own right uh <laughs> and i think uh you know it's it's very interesting you know particularly when i hear you know people of color talking about um, racism and uh, you know what it looks like and what it doesn't uh you know Shelby Steele probably being one of them um and there are others right that you know that say that you know black folks and people of color have more privilege now than uh than white folks so again that's just all this shenanigans <laughs> that, that go on that's out there uh that's why I encourage all of my listeners um, to be very well read and to be very well connected, uh, which is part of what I, you know, like doing on this show is to is to really be able to provide, you know, some of that space. Not all of it, right? I'm not the sole and be all of of knowledge or whatever, but just a fraction of it, and to be able to help folks just stay a little bit woke. What y'all think about um, them uh, them Republicans all talking about uh, 
<laughs> well, not all of them were GOP, but all of them were on Trump's side once he was elected. Um, I, wasn't that some foolishness? <laughs> right? You got Lindsey Graham on there, Mark Rubio, Rick Perry, Susan Collins. I mean, the list just goes on. I'm going to put the link. That was an Instagram um I think that was an Instagram post somebody posted. I've been saving a whole bunch of Instagram posts because I was like, man, I got to get put this stuff on the show and, uh, you know, get this out to my listeners, man. But if you haven't heard it, some of you probably already heard it. But if you haven't heard it, um, it it the, the the foolishness, the the idiocy that that exists in there. Right. The, of what they they said. And we already know Lindsey Graham is a is a damn liar anyway. Right. He was the one who said uh, back when um, uh, Obama in 2016 was trying to get Merrick Garland. Uh, in as a Supreme Court nominee, uh, he was like, well, no, this has got to be way for the next president. And, you know, they got him on tape saying this. He was like, um, uh, 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 you know, if if, there, if if the tables were turned, right, he was like, the tables are turned, I would be saying telling the Republican president that, you know, we got to wait till the next election. And right. And so he basically people were like, we well, yeah, are. But what if it was a, a Republican in, in office? And as soon as Trump, as soon as, unfortunately, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, he was one of the first in line to be like, let's get it rushed through. So, oh, man, these sorry ass folks. I tell you, I I can't stand. I mean, a lot of politicians drive me nuts. Democrats, too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but GOP members, uh, there's very few of them. And, and, and we know, right? I mean, we're seeing the polls that are coming out now and uh, New York Times that are talking about how, um, you know, uh, you know, how GOP members, you know, they don't believe Trump uh, incited the riots, right? So that's what's like, I'm just like, all that talk and rhetoric, right? I'm just like, y'all, y'all are whack. <laughs> y'all are some whack ass folks. Um, and I think is, again, as somebody who studies this stuff, man, it drives me nuts to see that because I think, and what gets me is that people fall for it. There are people who believe that. And we truly do live in a United States of amnesia, as Cornell West once so aptly coined we have forgotten and we tend to forget and because our memories only really service our social and eclectic social imagination really only lasts about four or five days okay and then we're on to the next okay keep that in mind you know when you think about the media cycle when you think about what's in news we forget it's one of my problems with social media because you can have a great tweet a whole thing of tweets going and 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 busting out and it's sounding great and everything and in two three days we done forgot it <laughs> even if you retweeted right well that was i don't know when, when did i say that so again uh we live in and, and i think that adds to that amnesia that collective amnesia that we forget and so much of history um is erased when we when we have such a short memory and really attention span when it comes to how we process information, how we process data, um, you know, I, what books have we read? Uh, I would imagine if I took a poll of our audience, I would imagine folks who listen to, to podcasts like this and others, you know, are pretty well read already to begin with. This is kind of what a lot of folks, is, at least as I've talked with them and if I heard back from people that, uh, you know, people use podcasts for, right? So I know I know that's what I use podcasts for is, is to, you know, to learn more, to push forward, right? Um, and, it, it you know, it's... it, it the, the general public is very unaware. Uh, and the general public is made up of just, you know, basic everyday folks that are going to work right you know uh trying to raise a family 
um, you know, trying to do their thing. A lot of them, you know, are are are, are believers in in the Jesus of the Christ, right? And so uh, they they go to church, um, you know, which is always you know, which is always amazing to me that you know, again. We, we And we can be smart people, but then check our minds at the door when we go to a place like church, which is always a, a, a phenomenological uh, a quandary and really, a, a um, you know, when you think about it, it's really a, uh, it's really a troubling aspect of, of religion because religion can confound, you know, good people, smart people uh, into doing some crazy things. Um, and we know that, right? Just with history. And so I think we're seeing some of that mess right now and in, in what is going on um you know i think i think also when we start to think about the double standards that exist when you think about again you know more and more details are coming out about the the you know the coup uh that happened here a few weeks ago at the capitol um you know we're learning about you know people who took private planes right out there people who are ceos uh, people who are, uh, you know, lovers and worshipers of, of, of whiteness as as an ideology and as law. Um, we're seeing, you know, the the guards, you know, helping, you know, the, there was that you know, one image of the guard helping one of the women, you know, down the stairs. Right. Meanwhile, <laughs> you have people of color, black folks who are continually being treated like crap. We have another black man shot who was uh, he was suffering uh, what his family believed to be a mental health crisis, uh, but he was a pastor. He was a, he was in, and they actually called a counseling center. I believe is at least what I what I've gotten from the pieces from the story. Uh, the, of course, the police show up. White guy, um, the guy's unarmed. What does it do? The police officer do? He shoots him dead. Um, and so this continues to happen. And this is the thing I keep telling people: like, what has changed? We're just waiting. We're like sitting ducks waiting for the next you know white police officer to be to shoot an unarmed black man right um or the chaos or the 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 uh, the really the the name smearing that happens when a black person is killed in the media right it's like well but they were this and well they were this and this and this and now they they might have been doing this and look at a post they put back five years ago you know woo meanwhile all these rioters that went up there these terrorists you know they're given being given organic food y'all heard about that Oh boy, with the the helmet, the the with the horns and looking like a, 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 a an outback, right? Uh, he was he was you know saying I'm, he went on a hunger strike because he was like I can't eat anything but an organic, and they gave that mofo a damn organic meal. That's the kind of shit right there because you know Sandra Bland wasn't given that treatment. You know Mike Brown wasn't given that treatment, and you know the countless amounts of thousands of black folk who are in jail right now who have gone on hunger strike because of some of the food. Those of you who work inside the prison, you know, understand the kind of meals and food that is served to them. If they go on a hunger strike, that's it. Take it or leave it. That's it, right? Flies in there, fingernails in there, uh, old moldy stuff. Oh, well. But this fool got himself an organic meal. Oh man, kiss my ass on that. Um, I, I'm telling y'all, I'm telling y'all. I think y'all need to hear Sister Girl here say it another way. This is a, a young woman, a young activist in D.C. Uh, this was just, I think this was last week or the week before, but it was, it was, it was within the last, uh, you know, uh, uh, was definitely before or after, excuse me, uh, the, uh, the the terrorist attacks on the Capitol. Um, she is 
lamenting and really putting out there exactly my own sentiment and 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 really the truth of the matter. She's speaking from a a, a point of view where she you know they were they were doing an action out in D.C. Uh, and then the police showed up. Uh, check this out. Fucking day for the past 200 some days. When we come out here with a Black Lives Matter action, you see police officers like this with riot gear at mutual aids, at jail supports. You see them at, with riot gear at, at vigils. You see them with riot gear at vigils. But yet, armed insurrectionists came here, armed terrorists came here. And Capitol Police was waving them in, opening the gates and shit, welcoming, welcoming white supremacy into the halls of Congress because it already fucking lives there. And what we're fighting for is fucking equality. So that shit doesn't live there. That shit is not allowed in there. Equality, black, you know, black lives actually mattering, centering black voices, making sure that black mothers don't die. That shit, that shit is not in there. That doesn't live in the spirit of what this house fucking holds. Even though slaves built it. <laughs> All those black and brown hands bleeding built this shit. But yet, all these fucking white, heckling ass faces are standing right here acting like this shit is a fucking joke. Fucking, there was a Confederate fucking flag. And a fucking Nazi flag, a don't tread on me flag. Three percenters and actual white supremacists in the halls of Congress. We wanted to put banners on the fence. And this is the shit that we are dealing with anti-fascist banners and this is the shit that we are dealing with we can no longer say that fascism is not a part of what, who america is this is america boo this is america you Walk see on. her breathing this is the america that black people have always lived in this is not something new this is not something out of the ordinary this is and to suggest otherwise is ahistorical <laughs> there have been other insurrections before this one so please understand that the white supremacists will continue to try to overthrow as long as we try to get fucking equality. But motherfuckers like them help them win. And the reason why they are not stopping them, the reason why Congress is not stopping them is because when you uphold white supremacy, it doesn't threaten their power. But when you try to dismantle it, it sure the fuck does. I'm fucking tired. I'm fucking tired. I'm over all of them. I'm over this shit. Any go to mutual aid. Yeah. Yeah. You feel that? You feel that? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that's on point right there. I mean, I think that is that, you know, that says exactly, you know, what is, what is happening right now. And that she's, she is, you know, and she's showing, right. This is, these are, and, 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 I, I'm going to try to put these links, uh, in, uh, in the show notes. I know they're, 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 I found the, again, the, I found these on Instagram, Anytime I find a good video or something that's, you know, that's got some good audio to it, I try to save it and, you know, um, use it here on the show in some manner. But um, I'll, I'll see if I can link it just so you can see it. A lot of you probably have already seen it and, and or heard it at least. Uh, but, you know, she's standing in front of, you know, just a wall of, of armed police. Right. And I think that's the thing that just that, 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 that gets me right. It's like. You know, black folks showing up, like she said, we're showing up for for equality. You know, for for, for black life to matter. Um, you know, and this is this is the way we're met. And police know how to disarm a situation. Police know how to to uh, you know to de-escalate, but they choose not to with black folk. 
So that's why I don't want to hear any more crap about no blue lives matter. Them blue lives don't matter? Shit. <laughs> they don't matter a damn thing uh, to insurrectionists, right? You see the video of old boy, the cop getting smashed in the, in the door, right? You know, and one of them that already died. I mean, again, these things are myths. They're veils, you know. All lives matter. Blue lives matter. That's bullshit. It's a big pile of it, too. Um, so we got, I, and, and again, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I, I wish I did, but I don't, um, I can diagnose the hell out of a problem. And I think, you know, it's important for us to sit with that and to figure out, right? Like what is the next solution? Cause I know Christianese folks will want to hop real quick on the, the bandwagon, right? Of, Oh, let's just pray and worship and pray unto God and, like, nigga, I'm, I'm, man, I'm, man, I'm ready for some serious action that will actually lead to some results. And again, I don't have the answers, but I know what's been, what we've been doing ain't working. We, we ain't, ain't working. So I'm just going to keep on pressing on, right? I guess that's, that's all we can do. Oh, but this week, y'all, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not here to listen to me. This is this week. I have the amazing Reverend Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman. Uh, she is amazing. And I, I, I reached out to her um, last year and we finally got a chance to sit down and talk just life and theology, um, womanists, uh, material. Uh, and this is, she is an amazing scholar. Uh, she's an assistant professor of theology and African-American religion at Yale University Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut. A first career concert dancer. I just learned this about her. How did I not know this about Dr. Terman? Uh, she's going to talk about that, too. She was uh, she was a concert dancer, uh, an ordained National Baptist preacher. Her research interests span the varieties of the 20th century U.S. theological liberalisms, most especially black and womanist theological, social, ethical and theo aesthetic traditions. Come on now. She's an author, minister, professor, and a public theologian. The Reverend Dr. Terman is a refreshing addition to our most pressing and national discussions of, here we go, faith, race, and gender. Um, I was like, man, I got I to gotta get you on the show. So I was very thankful to have her uh, on this. Um, I think, you know, it, she says, you know, at a time in our history when the black church and black lives are once again under a constant siege, Dr. Terman has committed her research and scholarship and a platform to a nuanced exploration of the most marginalized among us. Um, I've seen her plenty and heard from her plenty at, um, uh, of course, AAR. Um, she is an amazing, well-renowned uh, speaker, gifted and talented uh, in her own right. And uh, she's just she had the way she places things is great. And uh, I was very thankful to, again to get her on the show and just to talk about these things. And I'm excited uh, to bring her back at some point as well, especially as she's working on new material, which you'll get to talk about um, here in a few minutes. Um I will also say that she is an amazing resource for those of you still trying to figure out, put some things, put some, you know, put some, uh, some meat on the bone, so to speak. So as always, I will link these in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. Go check it out. Profane Faith. All the show notes are there, all the links. Um, and you know, go buy her book, go check out her podcast as well. She has a great, um, a podcast that she black women think podcast that that link will be in the um the show notes as well uh so check that out and support us uh folks who are out here doing doing the damn thing right 
Oh, my goodness. Well, enjoy this conversation that I had with Dr. Terman. Um, be safe, be smart, and be aware. All right, y'all. Check it out. <laughs> oh, mercy. Well, it's good to have you on the show, doctor. Um, you have, uh, I have admired you from afar for the work that you've done. Uh, I remember I first attended my first womanist uh, uh, session in 2011, I think it was, when it was in San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I was blown away. Uh, AAR has been a, a great, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's been a great place and space. And so I thank you for the work that you have done and laid out. Um, I know I can come and listen to a word. In fact, I'm going to link your podcast, um, okay. to, uh, you know, to, to everything, uh, uh, in, in the, in my show notes, black woman think. I love that. Listen to the yes. first episode and talking about, I want to get to that. Uh, you said keep, keep Harry Tubman out there dirty MAGA mouth. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Okay. Yes. I love it. Yes. 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 Well, mm -hmm. for the audience though who may not know you, what's what has been happening from birth to now? What has what how where have you achieved? Or maybe you were born, Doctor Ebony. I, I I don't know. You know, <laughs> shoot, always existed. Certainly not. Certainly not. All right. Well, um, let's see. I mean, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up oh, okay. in the um, arts community, the Black arts community here. Um, as you know, an adolescent, I began training with the. Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater Foundation and kind of made my way up and around those parts, um, transitioned from uh, Ailey around the um, same time that I decided to, uh, of course, I was, I was doing my um, undergraduate work uh, during that time when I was working as a concert dancer as well. Um, I started at Fordham University okay. right. here in New York, at Lincoln Center, actually. And um, I was a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I was working on a degree in fine art. Okay. And, um, of course, given my my background um, in, in, uh, in dance and in concert dance broadly, but specifically in kind of Black traditions um, mm. in dance. And um, while I was at Fordham, you know, I grew up, you know, you know, I was a child of the hood. You know, my family was working class to um, poor to working yeah. class, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, so I, I danced my mm -hmm. way out. You know, that was dance was what kind of distinguished me uh, in my um, in my community. You know, I was the girl who won all the talent shows for for getting out there, you know, yeah. and and, and um, uh, putting it down. And, um, you know, it kind of carried me and, and, and held me above the fray mm -hmm. of uh, what was going on. You know, I was born in the 80s, so I was born, you know, and raised up in the kind of height of the crack epidemic. Yes. And... Um, you know, a child of, you know, the hip hop generation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so there was a lot going on in black communities. Uh, there, there continues to be, but when I was coming up in the 80s and the 90s, there was a lot going on. And it was really by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, and my um, access to the arts that mm -hmm. I was able to, nothing else, nothing special about me, 
per se, right? It was uh, really um, being able to tap into um, a gift that I had and was able to hone. Um, I went to college for fine art because that's what I could do. I was always um, fairly bright, you know, um, just, you know, was raised in a home where my mother didn't play that, you know, she went to work, <laughs> we went right. to school, and, you know, and <laughs> we did what we needed to do. Um, and so I was bright, but I was, you know, but I danced. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. When I got to Fordham, I realized that there was this world beyond dance. Mm. Um, and I realized that there was another way of being in the world kind of beyond, um, beyond just kind of my kind of embodied, um, aesthetic, evaluation and or valuation and um i learned about this thing called philosophy mm. for the first time mm. you know and so some of my first at fordham there was a core curriculum so you had to take a philosophy class you had to take a theology class okay you had to take you know certain things and so i i learned about this thing called philosophy my first theology teacher was a black woman wow. um and i uh, engaged in um the African-American studies program there very rigorously hmm. where my primary professor was the immediate, an immediate student of James Cone, Mark Chapman. Wow. And so, um, I learned that not only could I dance and kind of, um, um, really, um, perform well in, mm -hmm. in that area, in that arena of life, but I learned at Fordham that I could also think, Right. And that there was a world where people listen to black people who could think. Right. Um, and um, I don't want to kind of make such a hard distinction between kind of dancing and thinking, but they're two different kind of, I got um, you. Mm -hmm. you know, what I'm saying Re yes. kind of ways of being in the world. Right. Um, and so um, and so I uh, decided I experienced. um I decided to kind of change my degree program and ended up having to reapply to school because I had been uh, accepted as an artist. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to switch over, you know, into a regular kind of Bachelor of Arts program. So that required another kind of application process. Long story short, went through that because I felt like I felt very called mm. to explore this new world um, and um, decided to study philosophy. That was my undergraduate, that became my undergraduate major. Um, and through that inquiry um, and through my own um, relationship with the church. So, you know, I am a child of the black church. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was raised up in the church. Uh, the First Baptist Church of Crown Heights um, mm. in Brooklyn is okay. actually, that church actually started in my aunt and uncle's living room. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Jeez. And, and, my, and my family called the first pastor, Clarence wow. Norman. Um, I did not He has know since been pastored by, um, two, is currently being pastored by a very good friend and colleague and, and formerly was as well. So anyway, you know, the church is in my blood. Mm -hmm. my, my mother was also very serious about making sure we were in church, when, you know, as we were growing up. I experienced, again, the study of philosophy and um, kind of my own theological sensibilities um, that, that had um, 
begun to be uncovered in my work in 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 dance um but began to um uh be uncovered anew mm-hmm. right in in my philosophical work really um supported me in understanding um what it felt like to be called and what it meant to be called and so very early on i knew i was called i didn't know to what because I hadn't seen examples of serious examples of black women in ministry. I did not know uh, how to articulate that kind of call, mm-hmm. but I knew I was being called to something. Yeah. And so with the support of um, an array of uh, black scholars who I, who I met as an undergraduate, people like Joy Bostick, um, Mark Chapman, Wow. Leslie Callahan, Felicia Thomas, um, and others. Yeah, All star um, class. Good night. <laughs> as well as my 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 pastor and some other you know some other very important um, people in mm-hmm. my life. I um, decided to apply to Union, mm-hmm. um, and that is you know I think the you know the beginning of of the real beginning of this story mm-hmm. i went to union seminary in new york city i was very young i went straight out of undergrad uh 20 years old maybe um and i um just kind of you know flourished from there i decided I went to Union because interestingly enough I wanted to study with Emily Towns and Dolores okay. Williams. Okay. All right. Of course Dr. Cone was there too. James mm. Cone was mm-hmm. there. But I I was introduced to um womanist thought in Mark Chapman's course on the black church at Fordham. Mm. And of course uh the text we read uh was Sexuality in the Black Church, uh, a womanist perspective by Kelly Brown Douglas. And I was like, I need to go there. And when I did some research, I found that Towns was there and um, Towns and Doris Williams were there. And so I read as an undergraduate in A Blaze of Glory, which was uh, Emily Towns' second book. Okay. Um, uh, uh, womanist, spirit, uh, womanist, I, I can't remember the, the subtitle, Spirituality as Social Witness, mm-hmm. I think, something mm-hmm. like that. Womanist Spirituality as Social Witness. And... Um, I knew I had to go there. So that was the beginning of it, really, for me. Uh, Once I was there, you know, I ended, I worked as a concert dancer that whole, you know, through my MDiv as well. And when I, uh, yeah, so I I was like going out on tour. (laughs) I love it. For several weeks and arranging with my professors and then coming back and I was teaching and doing all kinds of stuff. Learning something new, dog. I love it. I love it. Um, And so, um, and then I, um, when I was accepted into the doctoral program, I decided that I needed to make a a fairly hard shift, right? Mm -hmm. So that I could uh, put a different kind of energy into my work. And really uh, do the best that I possibly could mm-hmm. in, in focusing in on my theological study. And uh, my project at that point, again, kind of um, at the confluence of my work as um, a Black concert dancer um, with um really um, deep commitment to Black people mm-hmm. and to the Black church. Um, with um, a, a, a deep sensitization to the body, 
Mm-hmm. And we can talk about we can talk more about that, but to to the body and to black bodies and yeah. to kind of the intersection of the black aesthetic and 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 white patronage. Um, um, you know, I just my project around black women's bodies, mm-hmm. um, the body, as I would go on to say, as a theological problem would emerge, and that is really, um, I mean, at at its core, this commitment to the body, this commitment to black women's bodies, this commitment to black people and envisioning um, beyond what is toward what ought to be for uh, or with uh, Mm. um, this community um, is really the depth of my, of my being. It, It really comes from, it is not an external project. It is very much interior. Um, and, I think what I was born to do and what I was born to speak about. So that's how we get to uh, my writing on enfleshment through the doctrine of incarnation Mm. and my thinking about um, the body and black bodies kind of uh, in confluence with how black bodies are subordinated in, um, in, in the public square, in the church and in the public square um, contemporarily. So Wow. That's, I mean, there's so much there, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's (laughs) absolutely. And everybody always takes it a different way. I appreciate that. I like that. This is, this is, there's a lot there. I, like I said, I learned something. In fact, listening to your podcast, I was, I learned that, you know, you were a dancer, a concert dancer. I'm like, wow, this, that's, that's some, that's some stuff right there. I mean, I hear, I mean, all of us, I know, get, you know, have to do what we got to do, you know, get through grad school and of course a doctorate and whatnot, mm-hmm. but that's, that's some, how, let talk, let's talk about the body. I mean, cause there's, there's mm-hmm. so much about that. I mean, growing up, you know, I, I was, I was raised in a very black Seventh-day Adventist, you know, very rigid fundamental environment. Mm-hmm. Now, most of these, other folks that had come from other traditions, whether they be Kojic or whether they be um, some form of Pentecostal, black Pentecostalism, Mm -hmm. Baptist, Oklahoma, Alabama. So there was a sense of Southern blackness. Mm -hmm. I'm from the West Coast, right? So Mm -hmm. it was a sense of Southern Southern blackness in in a West Coast city. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the body was always looked at almost with shame, right? It's like, keep yourself covered. Uh, If you're dancing, don't get crazy now. I mean, we'd have, you know, spiritual Mm -hmm. dances and whatnot, but, it, you know, it, it was particularly if it was a woman doing it, it was always much more critique than, than if there were men doing. So mm-hmm. I'm curious how you nuance that and how you work, navigate through some of that stuff, especially in black context. Yeah. So I um, let's see. I should say that, um, you know, on my mother's side, the uh, we were Baptist on mm-hmm. my father's side. My father's family was deeply rooted in in Methodism, and um, so I so even though I am Baptist and much of my family, most of my family is Baptist, right? There is this. I was I was raised between both sides. Okay. And there was never um, my mother was. Uh, although she was very kind of committed to the religious formation of her children, um, she was not at all um, kind of kind of fundamentalist mm-hmm. in her orientation to that formation. Okay, all right. In fact, my mother, although she would never probably self-identify in this way, but my mother was actually very feminist. She was the first... 
okay. kind of black feminist that I ever knew, right? She was one who, um, you know, uh, you know, she was she was serious serious about you know faith. You had to go to church, you had to go to Sunday school, you had there to you sing go. in the choir, all of that. That's you right. Know? That's right. But she was also like, yeah, yeah, and let's go get this. You know, she would buy me all the all the tapes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know what I'm saying? All the CDs when yes. we finally got to that. My mother would buy me Tupac. You know, my oh, mother would buy on. me Biggie. My mother would buy <laughs> me Kim. You know what I'm saying? And then we would be like, and let's go to church on something. You know, so there was a way, not not that that is evidence of her feminism, but she would also say things sure. like, um, she would also say things like, you can do anything you want to do. Mm. Right. You have a mind. Use your mind. You can be what you want to be. If as long as you work hard, you can do it. Right. She was always just um, my biggest cheerleader and always kind of um, always speaking agency. Right. Into my life. That's powerful. In ways that Mm. was very distinct from some of the message. My first chapter in my next book is actually about kind of my memory of the women hmm. in 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 my church, the church I was baptized in. And um uh and and so um it, it was what the messaging my mother was giving me at home, right? Even though she was like committed to like this kind of religious formation, this kind of ritual of um sanctification if you will right she was also right so she was kind of sending me to church where i saw things around the policing of women's bodies Mm -hmm. women's agency Mm -hmm. and and all of that but at home she was telling me you have agency you are free you do you know you if you put your mind to it you can do it right Mm -hmm. she would also say things like don't let a man dictate to you, you know, <laughs> yeah. what you can. I mean, she was she she was a um, the first black feminist I knew. Wow. And um, and so um, for me, there were there were always kind of these two strands at work, and I never really probably because I wasn't thinking incredibly deep at that time, but they never seemed opposed to each other, right? It was at that point in time, right? It was, I'm fully who I am, you know? My mother sent me to dance class. She celebrated my art, my my artistic um, kind of uh, potential and and capacities. Um, And, you know, and we went to church. Hmm. And, you know, and, and, you know, we listened to the preacher and, and then we got home and she would say, go on to dance class and, you know, come on, what do, you know, what music are we listening today? Even though on Sundays we, we listen to gospel music all day, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. So, right. But, you know, my mother was, um, so, so these, there were always kind of these two distinct messages, but there was this kind of very interesting um, intersection right Hmm. in me so i never felt like i couldn't Mm -hmm. be fully embodied and also love the lord right that was never my reality wow oddly enough um and you know i was a baptist too so you know baptist we we all got different ideas you know the autonomy of the local church the priesthood of all believers yeah we we do what we want to do and (laughs) we still baptist so um, so, right. So there was never this, um, idea that my body 
was something to be ashamed of mm. or um, something to to your point about shame, shy away from. Mm-hmm. There was all it was always like, you know, what did Trinity five seven say? My body is the Lord's, right? Okay. And I can use it in um I can kind of work through it and use it in these really beautiful um ways um that um bring hope and bless and 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 um you know encourage. And so that's what it was for me. It was never um a real tension mm-hmm. until I got older. He, until, that's that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What and what was some of that? I mean, I'd be curious. And, and like you said, when you got older, because you ha- obviously having the foundation that you have. I mean, that's that's powerful going into that. Mm-hmm. I I hear a lot of times, often as I'm sure you know, like the opposite, mm-hmm. right? It's like right. It's horrible growing up, and then you kind of get a sense of freedom. So what what was that like for you? Yeah. So um, it was interesting because. My experience of the demonization or the subordination of my body first came from, right, in a conscious way, when I knew it, first came through race. Mm. Mm. Um, Right, like it was happening in the church, right? I knew women couldn't preach, like women shouldn't be preachers, like women were on the mother's board and they were the usher. Like Like that was there. Okay. But like this kind of, conscious understanding that my that that my body um was kind of wielded at the pleasure of others mm. um was um was was a matter of race for me and it happened okay. in in through the arts really um i um I, uh, before I realized it in the church. So I, gosh, how do I, how do I speak what happened without outing people? Um, so I got there was you. An yes. incident when we had, I'll, I'll, I'll share. Um, we had, um, a group of, of, of dancers. We had like a party or some kind of celebration at one of our donors homes. And so, Almost all of us were black, I think. I mean, there may have been black or brown. I don't, we were all black. And we were at our donor's home, big, beautiful home out in the suburbs of New York. And, um, you know, at that point, I had never seen anything like it. Big, beautiful pool in the backyard, mm. just this huge spread. And at one point during the celebration, all of the dancers and teaching artists were told to line up in front of the pool. Now, during this time, I was in school. I was studying philosophy. I was studying African-American studies. So conversations about race and racialization, those things were starting to happen for me in my life. We were told to line up in front of the pool, and we were just told to say our names. And so I remember distinctly, I was young. I was probably 20 years old, maybe younger. Mm. Mm. And uh, I remember lining up, and there was all these Black people lined up in front of the pool, saying our names to a sea of white donors sitting at tables, being served iced tea and lemonade, by black women in made black and whites. 
you know, the kind you Man. saw like on TV, you know, yeah. in Gone with the Wind, you know. And, yes, yes. And I remember seeing this and thinking, just in terms of the arrangements of the arrangement of bodies, oh no. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. No. Yeah, absolutely. There is something mm-hmm. very wrong here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, well, I'll leave it there. There is something very wrong here. Yeah. And I knew at that point that I had to get out of that. Had to, There had to be a way to reposition my body so that I would never be on that kind of benign contemporary auction block saying my name mm. the sea of white donors again. Whew. And, um... And so that was the first time, like, I was like, oh, there's something, like, something about my body, like, my body means something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I began to articulate uh, a call on my life without any real specificity, but that God was calling me, I began to run into that same kind of, um, that same kind of, what's the word, when there's kind of disharmony, when you know something is wrong, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the context of uh, male power, black male power in the black church, right? Mm-hmm, Here is mm-hmm. this 22-year-old girl trying to, who was, um, you know, I mean, I, I in in those days I was modeling, I was dancing, right? I had a certain kind of, aesthetic mm-hmm. right and so i didn't look right in quotes like anybody's preacher because i wasn't male because i was very young you know I, I, you know i would by you know scientific standards at least i was still an adolescent you know and i was um you know i looked like i probably should have been doing something else at that time these days, something different, but, uh, you know, and so I, I didn't fit the mold of what a uh, someone who was called by God was supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And so, and that had to do within, uh, you know, with an interracial context had to do with my gender. It also had to do with my age. Um, and it also had to do, it, both of those things combined with an aesthetic. Um, and so I, um, and so this body thing, seemed to be chasing me, right? Mm, mm-hmm. I thought I had escaped it in the theater and, you know, but but found it anew in the church as an, as an adult with um, a certain level of um, consciousness and a certain grasp uh, of um, ideas around um, social indicators like race and gender uh, and so on and so forth. So that is, um, that's how... I came to know that the body, my body was a problem, mm-hmm. both in terms of uh, uh, its gender identity and its racial identity, and why I determined, I set out at that time to resist it with everything I could. That And that's powerful. I, I, guess, I guess that was going to be my next question. I mean, because, you mm-hmm. know, you've, as you've talked about that, I mean, being in a, I mean, when I first started to really dig into particularly black feminism. It really wasn't even mm-hmm. in, until my senior year in college. And mm-hmm. even then it was being taught by white males. So, um, my Lord, oh I, my Lord. I, I, you're right. 
Right. That's, <laughs> when, that's why when you first say your first theological professor was was black, I'm like, man, I, I, I wish that was the case for me. I had to like take all the extra side classes I could to get all the, you know, the blackness out of that. So. No, my first theology uh, professor was Joy Bosick. She was Dolores Williams' doctoral student. She was an adjunct at Oof. Fordham at that time. And then I, because of her Oof. and Chapman, I went on to study with Dolores Williams. That see and that, see, I'm just jealous. I mean, that all that right there, that is just. I mean, cause yeah, I I, I can't even imagine. I mean, well, I, I just got. What was that even like? I mean, what was that? How do, how was that? I mean, obviously, when you're working with somebody, you get to really know them, and I get there's the facade and the public persona. But what was that like? Um. So I wasn't Dr. Williams' doctoral student. I should be clear about that. Um. I was so so but but she was a part of my formation mm-hmm. right as mm-hmm. a um master of divinity student I, I studied I took a bunch of classes with her um and sat in her home it, it it was an experience that unfortunately well I was gonna say unfortunately like none of my students will have because she's no longer teaching at this time um, but, um, mo- one of the most powerful experiences in my life to be at Union, mm-hmm. uh, at that time, Union Seminary, New York, studying very closely with Dr. Cohn, who would remain a very close mentor and friend for the remainder of his life, mm-hmm. um, and advocate for me, especially later in his life, being, uh, studying with, um, Dolores Williams, mm-hmm. studying systematic theology mm. uh, with a black woman um, of her stature and of her intellectual range, uh, and studying with Emily Towns, who was uh, my doctoral uh, advisor, um, along with Gary Dorian. Um, and at that time, Edwina Wright was uh, still living and at Union, she, a black woman who was my Hebrew teacher. And at that time, Vincent Winbush was at uh, Union. Excuse me if I said something else. At Union, and he was my first um, new te- my first Bible teacher, uh, professor, and um, uh, Michael Harris, who uh, is no longer at Union but was there at the time, who was my f- um, one of my first professors of church history, African-American man. I mean, to, to have th- these persons Absolutely. as really as a, as my gateway mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. kind of professional theological study and identity um, was, it is an unspeakable kind of gift. Absolutely. An unspeakable gift. Absolutely. And I feel so indebted mm-hmm. to all of them and I feel, um, I feel, uh, I feel as if I, I carry them um, with me. I'm very serious about their legacies and their work, and I, I feel a, a bless the blessing of the burden, right, of carrying their weight, their scholarly weight, and their, um, and the weight of their concern. For black people, in a very particular way, um, I feel that, and it's it's um, it is a gift. That's the only way that I can explain it. it is is it, it is an unparalleled 
gift uh, mm. intellectually and I think um, personally as well. Yeah. So. No, absolutely. I think that's I think that's something just renowned. I mean, because it's like I had to read the, their books and, and yeah. which was great. I mean, it would not yeah, take it away from that. But to sit at that and I think that, you know, I just even my own journey, I've just, you know, just desired like that's that's why I feel like AAR has been that kind of hub for me. And even though I come right. at it, obviously done with a doctor and all that stuff, but it's like still been be like, all right, well, let me at least go to this session. I can hear them speak and just, you know, try to glean right, something. Right, but that's right. that's well. And, and at that time, you know, now you got me walking down memory lane, but at that time, and even even now, this is the case at Union, but the professors lived on, on campus, mm. right? So oh, wow. you lived among your professors. So it okay. wasn't just sitting in class with them. I mean, these are, I was, I sat in their homes. Wow. You know, like literally sitting at the feet and listening to them not only talk about, um, Paul Tillich, right, or um, or kind of apocalyptic, womanist ap- apocalyptic vision, right, or black theology, or Reinhold Niebuhr, or right, um, Shaler Matthews, or what, whatever. But but listen to them talk about like what kind of stories they were reading, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. what kind of beer they were drinking, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's or, right. What kind of car um, they would drive if they could, like mm-hmm. things like that. So it was it was. Um, for as much as it was a very stimulating intellectual, not very, I mean, it was just overwhelmingly powerful intellectual experience. It was also um, a deeply transformative personal experience as well. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't yeah. imagine and I can't imagine at the same time. I'm just like, <laughs> wow. So, I mean, so given that, I mean, that's, so that's so that's beautiful. I mean, so then how has it, when you've come up against resistance, especially as an African-American woman living in this time, right? Yeah. <laughs> in this era uh, how have you navigated some of those areas? I mean, I, and and maybe you have. I mean, I know my partner Emily. She works in an environment mm-hmm. with all women. It's they're different from different backgrounds, and so it's like every time she gets a, a sexist comment or even just a little model, she's just like, "Oh man, I I forget about you know that this is you know working with all women. It's like you know, yeah, it's not a perfection utopian, but there's not that heteronormativity and that kind of patriarchal like, hey baby, right. you know, it's like right. that type of mess." How have you, you know, dealt with some of that, including in stuff? It's just at the academy. You know how folks can get with heads yeah. and egos and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so as I said, you know, I came to know my body as, um, right, in a very particular way as mm-hmm. a racial problem, a racialized problem in kind of the arts world, right? Even though I, I was kind of cultivated in a black arts environment, mm-hmm. right? There are people who give money who are not black to black arts institutions. And then I came to know my body as a gendered problem um, in the context of the black church. And then I came to know um, very interestingly um, the kind of um, non-heterosexual body or right. The queer black body, right. Which was very much normative in black arts world Mm -hmm. and like very much shame shunned and demonized in the black church, right? It was like this mix of things going on um, in my, in my life. And, and so um, I will say that I um, having teachers, the teachers that I did my at 21, right? So it was, it was, it was very early on. 
my sense of the sacredness yeah. of my black woman's body mm-hmm. was like foundational. It was like, oh no, they're wrong. Like <laughs> the racists are wrong. Yeah. Right. This is this was like baseline. Right. Mm-hmm. The racists are wrong. The sexists are wrong. The heterosexist kind of cis normative folks are wrong, um, or the anti queer folks are like they're just wrong. Mm. Right. And and what we gonna teach you to do is build an argument o- about why uh, racially subordinated, gender subordinated, and sexually subordinated, and class subordinated bodies are God's bodies. Mm. Okay. So that was just like that that that's just my that's just in my pocket like that's just my that's 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 my formation in, yes. in many sense as a yes. theologian. Mm-hmm. My formation mm-hmm. is that the body that dis- defies mm-hmm. right these normative social realities, right? The body that is not white, the body that is not rich, the body that is not male, the body that is not um, cishet, right? Those are God's bodies. And those other bodies might be if they get on the side of the bodies that are God's bodies, (laughs) right? So that, that was just like, that's how I came to understand what mm. thinking theologically was. Um, and so when I found myself in spaces across the, 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 the map there, but especially in black churches that got one of those things right, kind of, mm-hmm. right? Especially, you know, I, I grew up in, I, I, I came of age, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a in Abyssinian Baptist Church Harlem, right? So a very kind of um, socially progressive uh, Black Baptist Church, um, where I, I also served for ten years, over ten years, um, and um, there was a very kind of strong and radical race. Um, critique, Mm -hmm. right, that was Mm -hmm. always kind of at the forefront of of that uh, church's identity. So, but then there were places where where, um, that same critical strength was absent, specifically as it related to gender, as it related to sexuality, and probably as it related to class, too. And so when when I came across spaces where that didn't get that whole message, right? That God's bodies are the bodies that have been, right, right, oppressed, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I already had a message for them, you know? It was in, it was, you know, it was in um, every part of my being. It, it, was in, it was in my preaching. It was in my kind of discourse uh, outside of the homiletic um, uh, practice. It was in my teaching. It was in how I walked into the church or how I walked into the classroom, right? It was just there that that my body, mm-hmm. uh, even as it opposed kind of normative understandings of power in church, in academy, my body is God's body. I mean, this is kind of the substance of my book. Um, and um, um, as I argue, right, it is the same substance as to its ethical identity. It is homoousius. The black woman's body is homoousius with Christ as to his ethical identity. And um, you're going to have to deal with that. 
so let's rock. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. Ooh, that, and that's what I love. And that, I mean, that power, I think, how, I mean, how does that come across in the, in the classroom as an educator working with students? And I'm, and I'm not sure what grade level, I mean, I'm predominantly undergraduate, um, very few graduate, you know, students and stuff. The, the undergraduate yeah. tends to, as they say, keeps the light on. They they're paying for the, you know, they're, they're keeping <laughs> the lights on and the, and the electricity going. But how, I mean, that that pedagogy has gotta, it's gotta fit in there somewhere because this, I you know, I could feel it coming through the waves. Just that that energy, even now. So I'm like, it's it's gotta be in that classroom somewhere. I'd be curious how that how that unravels, how it manifests itself, and what you teach, how you teach. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um... I um, teach a broad range of things, you know, because I, I, I understand myself to be, to kind of specialize in um, 20th century theological liberalism in the U.S. kind mm-hmm. of very broadly. Okay. Even though my kind of, my linchpin is, um, or the fulcrum of my work is in kind of black and womanist liberation theologies. Okay. Um, but, um, so I teach I teach like I teach Tillich, I teach Bonhoeffer, um, I teach Niebuhr, um, you know, I teach intro courses in ethics and theology that cover a, a broad range, right, um, of um, of the tradition, and um, and then I also teach right black theology, which means I do a little bit around, you know. Um, uh, non uh, Abrahamic black non Abrahamic traditions, right? I do um, and, and right and black Abrahamic traditions, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, I teach womanist theology and I teach black feminism and I um, um, teach. I just teach an array of of of, of uh, subject matters, and it's really interesting because. Um, Oftentimes I will get, um, like, it'll be a complete, um, you know, kind of the strangest thing ever for a a white student to take Dietrich Bonhoeffer with a black woman at the helm, right? (laughs) Or, (laughs) um, because there's, well, because very few of us, very few of us do that. Or for a, you know, um, or to to think about Schleiermacher with (laughs) a black woman or to think, right, or um, even black theology for, um, you know, black men to kind of enter into what was uh, and and continues to be a very black masculinist discourse, um, right, under the authority, at least pedagogical authority, of a woman, of Mm. a black woman. So it's interesting. Um, But I, you know, I I love what I teach. I'm always teaching for liberation. And so um, I get excited about that. And I I just, you know, I, I, I... I teach for liberation. I teach for transformation. And mm-hmm. that's how I approach all of what I do. Um, and I'm always about, as as a constructive theologian who is also um, and always a theological ethicist as well, I'm always teaching students to think about spe- especially historical figures mm-hmm. and theological concepts, right? Right. Um, in relation to um, what's going on. In the world right now, so we can't think about um, 
Irenaeus, for instance, <laughs> um, outside of thinking about um, the capital coup, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> Come on. Right, so we're right. So we're so we're always kind of reading the tradition yes. in relation to what is right now, so that we can be interpreters, um, theological interpreters of our world in ways that are relevant for persons who will never sit in Ivy League classrooms. Mm, I love that. I love that. So okay. So now co-interpreters. Yeah. No. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I and because you're at you're at Yale. Because I think I saw one of your books that said you were at uh, Princeton. I was at Duke. You were Duke. I was at Duke. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at Yale. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's what's up. I think I spoke with a student that's going there uh, earlier today, Skyler. They're uh, they were at AAR and they were telling me they were at uh, at, at Yale. Anyways, that sounds it, familiar. Yeah. They were in the MDiv <laughs> program, so I was like, oh wait, I'm talking to. Dr. Marsh Thurman determined tonight. I don't know. Shoot. But any, at any rate, um, good stuff that's that's going on. So let me then ask this. In the current era that we're in, we got four years of, I used to say Reagan was probably one of the worst presidents, you know, in, in the country in our modern era. But this 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 man uh, has by far overtaken that, that title uh, just in the last year. Um what have you made over the last four years, uh, white evangelicals, just the numbers that have voted for him? Now you've got kind of a an exodus, if you will, to even use that language of people leaving his White House. Another person resigned today from Homeland Security. Uh, you got DeVos. You've got this little, you know, you got terrorists, white terrorists coming in. The audacity of them to think that they could take work time to get off their work, go and do this. And then the audacity thought that they were going to come back. And just be like, yeah. hey, we're okay. What have been some of your thoughts? Because I loved your post, and I reposted it on on Instagram okay. on uh, when when um, Biden announced uh, Kamala uh, mm -hmm. as as vice president. I love that post, and I love the way you worded that. Um, there was a few people that were like, yeah, but what about this? And I was like, didn't you just did did you not read the post? <laughs> did you not read the post? <laughs> so, how have you navigated some of these this this nefarious? era that we've that we've found ourselves especially as scholars especially as black scholars um in environments that you know can sometimes be interesting you know it's been a real nightmare daniel it's been um it's been a nightmare the last the last four years have been a nightmare and i distinctly remember uh when the 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 night that trump won i knew mm -hmm. Before they called it, I knew at by like nine o'clock absolutely that he was going to yeah, absolutely. and I I remember posting, I can't find the post, I'm sure it'll show up at some point, but I remember posting, many will die because mm. of this. Many will die. And here we sit at from COVID alone, not even counting the five who died in the Capitol coup, but from COVID alone, we are nearing four hundred thousand gone unnecessarily because of not only sheer incompetence, but to total indifference um, in our uh, federal administration. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, this has been a nightmare. And mm. what I didn't know four years ago is that we would be kind of locked in our homes to a certain extent because of, once again, the, the um, flaccid uh, competencies of, of, of the government. 
I, um, how have I, how have I, you know, on the one hand, right, I feel all of that, right? This is a nightmare and it's just unspeakable. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> Come on, Doc. Come on. On. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm like, and yes, this is America, right? Mm-hmm. This is nothing new. Um, white, um, white supremacists, um, uh, in many ways, uh, founded <laughs> this nation. I mean, you know, under God, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the say, uh, stop the steal rally, um, that turned into a capital coup, uh, just last week. Right. And the fact that they prayed the Lord's prayer and then hang, hung a noose on Capitol grounds before storming the Capitol and leaving <laughs> feces and urine and flying a Confederate flag through its hallway. Like when you think of all that, right, right. you can't like you, you make sense of it by the fact that the actual nation, mm-hmm. right, like on the one hand, it's unspeakable. Mm hmm. On the other hand, you realize scholarly that this nation was founded on the logics of of of, of slave, slave enslavability mm-hmm. and genocide and rapeability. That's what that is what this nation under God was established upon. Yes. There is no um United States of America. There is no American project, right, without the uh, desecration of black bodies. There is no American project without, without right the uh, genocidal impulse, right against uh, brown and red bodies, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. this border wall that this fool, this evil, demonic, um, yeah. Uh, form of a president is going down to San Antonio supposedly this weekend to to celebrate his little wall or whatever right like those logics I mean these this is kids brown children being placed in cages and separated from their parents today that's the auction block that's the genocide that's mm. the rapeability because believe me these children are being sexually assaulted too yes right? yes these, these logics are the yes. same these logics of 20 2020 and 2021 are the same logics upon which this nation was formed. So for as much as we are like, what just mm-hmm. happened? And and also like are compelled to think about the coup attempt in relation to Black Lives Matter, my scholarly self, the Black woman who is thinking, is mm-hmm. also like, well, of course. Well, of course. And this yeah. has been fomenting, right? And so the kind of the the underbelly of um, this white supremacist project has been awakened, right? It never went away, but it, it was awakened mm-hmm. and stirred and given power um, by the um, by the irresponsible and demonic and um, ignorant. Uh, rhetoric and practices of um, the 45th president of the United States of America. So, 
Yes. <laughs> yes. I um yeah, I yeah, it was interesting in 2016 because I it, you're right. I knew I knew even beforehand I was like this fool going he going to win. Uh, <laughs> right. And I had a lot of my little white liberal friends be like, "No, there's no way. This is a sure shot for Hillary. This is and and I still hold that had it not been for COVID and just his royal f up with 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 all of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of it, I don't know if Biden had enough in the wheelhouse to to um, to have pulled it yeah, off, yeah. Right. Right, right. Right, right, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, well, I'm curious too. Just be, uh, I don't know if you've seen the documentary. Um, oh, I'm spacing it right now. It's it's put out by the far right, but it's it, it's it's funny. I had one of my little like I like to call them my little alt right students. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, uh, Lord Jesus. Yes. Oh, God, I'm gonna pray for you. I'm See, please, I'll take your life. I'll take it all. <laughs> I will take it all. Um, because yeah, I I you know I I yes we I you get a you get a handful of those students. Uh, of no course. safe spaces. That's what it's called. Right. No safe spaces. Okay. In essence, the argument is that the left doesn't want to hear anybody's thought other than their own. And so they've shut out and they're citing cases like when I think Berkeley uh, told, um, oh, what's her name? She's a pundit, extreme right wing pundit, blonde. I'm forgetting her name. Hmm. But it, she was going um, to Berkeley. Wasn't okay. t- it wasn't Tommy Laughlin, but um, That's Lauren, That's Lauren, Tommy say, Lauren, yeah. right. Um, um, it's the other one. The other one, um, the tall. He's married to... Um, Dynamite. Yes. <laughs> I can't remember my name. Um, Coulter. And yes. Coulter. That's yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and so you know they were citing how that and Ben Shapiro they couldn't get places on these liberal campuses, and of course they I think they cited Yale and of course Harvard and how they mm-hmm. shut them out. But you know that they weren't talking hate speech; they were just presenting an alternate view. And you know they we've become such a nation of wanting to be called by pronouns and we can't say this and why can't white yeah. people say the n-word how and does any of that stuff ever come up in your class classroom at all or how's that affected you in in your particular era because i feel like this era has brought about that to a whole new level now you got white folks talking about like you said in in the podcast they're comparing mm-hmm. themselves <laughs> to to Rosa Parks. I'm like right. what in the blazes and hell incarnation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um so yes. Um I I had um some interesting experiences of um white supremacy in the classroom, especially at my former institution at Duke. Okay. Um I um and it's definitely right that kind of present that presence of i don't know if i would say alt right I, I probably would say although i mean that there's a clear presence of that at my current institution but um i would just say like a very kind of conservative um you know very kind of conservative and and troubling perspectives that definitely toe the line of the alt-right. I mean, I haven't had any students, you know, kind of out, outwardly, explicitly self-identify as like QAnon uh, uh, disciples or anything like that in my class at all. Um, but but I do kind of get um, 
sometimes some conservative energy. And sometimes I don't because as a black woman, like they have other options. They don't have to take class with me unless they do, you know, if I'm teaching a, um, a, uh, like a, a required course, mm-hmm. a required intro, and then they can just wait for another year for someone else to teach it because of the rotation. So I don't know why any of them would actually choose to take a course with me. I felt some of that energy and, and to be quite fair, um, the one time where it got a little, it almost got to a point where I had to shut everybody down, which is mm. not my practice in a dialogical. Right. I tried to kind of cultivate dialogical space in my um, in my classrooms, part of my pedagogy of really being hospitable to mm-hmm. the perspectives uh, of uh, an open, not just hospitable, but really opening space for the perspectives and teachings that the students have to offer. And... Um, there came a moment, really, it was it was um, propelled by one by a black male student mm. who had wow. some interesting theories around um, liberalism and um, pedophilia that kind of bordered on some of the conspiracy theories that we're hearing right now. Okay, from QAnon and this yeah. idea that the liberal Dems are yep. like pedophiles or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which was one of the one of the um, um, reasons, uh, stated reasons behind the coup attempt uh, last week. Anyway, so that came up. And Mm -hmm. then alongside that, um, some um, very, very inappropriate comments around sexual assault and kind of rapeability um, were were proffered. And so... uh, that's only happened once in okay. my classroom um, in the, uh, what is this, five, six years that I've been at Yale. And mm-hmm. um, when those kinds of things happen, I take, I have, I have a, if you haven't been able to tell, a fairly like big extroverted personality, <laughs> which I try to keep reined in. But when it, when things go berserk, there's, there's no, I have no problem like saying, oh, I'm going to get really big now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and like take this back. Yes. And so, um, I, I, what I did, and it's happened at, uh, at my former institution as well, is I just, everyone had to stop talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone, like no more, you don't get to talk and I'm going to talk. And then I just kind of, uh, you know, had to undo. Right. Um, uh, undo unwind some of the um attempts toward violence that were made like rhetorically in the classroom so i think um how do i deal with it is um look it's like how i started our conversation when i said the fundaments of my theological vision Mm -hmm. right and of my faith Mm -hmm. um kind of are compelled from from the notion that the bodies that defy normative understandings of power are God's bodies. And so when that is, um, when that kind of fundamental premise of my liberationist theological ethic is, um, is bastardized, right? Yeah. Things have to stop and we have to reestablish the fundamental premise of my theological ethic and the one that guides classroom interactions. And so, um, yeah, I stop people from spewing violence. Yes. And then, 
you know, in the ways that black women and black people have done uh, time and time again, I clean it up and throw it out. There you go. I love that. No, I love that. I love that. Whoo, I, man, the hour just <laughs> flies by. This is what I love. This is why I know a guest is just great because I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, how has it already been an hour? Um, but I definitely want to keep to our time. But Doc, mm-hmm. what, what are you currently working on? I know you have a podcast of which, um, again, I'm going to put in the uh, the show notes, uh, Black Women Black women Think, Race, Gender, and Religion. Um, and I'm assuming that's everywhere. I see it's Podbean on your on your website, but I'm assuming that's like it's iTunes. Apple. And- yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, so iTunes, um, Black Women Think, Race, Gender, Religion. And, you know, I'm just thinking <laughs> out loud. <laughs> I'm thinking out loud um, at those intersections of um, race, gender, and religion, which is which is another way of saying that I'm espousing my woman as theological identity mm-hmm. um, over the sound waves. I um, also uh, have started, have begun work toward uh, building out a teaching and learning hub, okay. a digital teaching and learning hub for um, progressive Black women of faith called Upgrade You, and um, through uh, it's where. The un- you and the university meet. So it's really geared toward people who might not um, ever, you know, go to school, um, mm-hmm. you know, may not ever have that opportunity privilege, may choose otherwise, but who want to be thinking about certain kinds of things and having certain kinds of conversations. So I'm looking forward to um, offering kind of a public um, theological course on black theology in the summer um, through that um, digital learning hub. And you can find that on my website, mar- www.marshallterman.com, and of course on Facebook. And then um, I am, of course, writing a book. And uh, the book is tentatively titled uh, Black Women's Burden male power, gender violence, and the scandal of African-American social Christianity. And um, I am, uh, it's essentially about violence against black women and racially progressive Mm. black churches and what that gender violence looks like and how black women's um, aesthetic legacy. So I'm thinking about black women and the arts, how our aesthetic legacies um, have and continue to resist Mm -hmm. those kinds of um, bodily transgressions. And, um, you know, just being a mother to my twin, my 15-month-old twins. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, that's great. And again, for those listening, I'll put these in the show notes. As always, whiteoutpodcast.com. Go there, Profane Faith. You click on it. I will put all this stuff, especially the, the links uh, to your books and uh, the podcast and, of course, what you have going. Because I think this is, again, this is great. And just what you bring to the table, Doc. It's amazing. Uh, seriously, I'm just I'm blown away because there's there is so much it, brokenness, and then to have just a, a figure of of your of your stature and where you're at. Um, I, I I'm I don't know if I should ask this on on air now, or if I should ask this <laughs> after I hit record. But I'm curious why you're at assistant. Like, what in the hematoma globin habitoshes? I'm thinking you should be associate or higher. Yeah. I, again, don't feel, well, don't you have to answer be. that. I'm just. I can answer it because I should be. You're absolutely correct. A part of that is because I transitioned institutions um, okay. halfway through my clock. So I moved from Duke to Yale and decided to start 
um, you know, decided to intentionally decided to start my clock over. Okay. Um, which is a good thing because I ended up having two children at the same time. Ah, and okay. um, so that delayed me. So anyway, this is my promotion year. Okay. So with the help of God, I will be associate uh, in April with the help of God. Um, and if not, then I guess I'll be somewhere else full. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I just, so I'm always looking at those things because having spent all these years in the academy, I'm just like, I had to fight tooth and nail. I, I can't imagine where you're at, uh, and, and not not imagine where you're at. That came out wrong. I can't imagine being a black woman trying to fight and navigate. I mean, there's there's some heteronormativity and male privilege that I can, can grasp onto and and write uh, because I hear you on the extrovertedness. I'm I'm a big extrovert as well, so mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I hear you on that. Well, thank you so much, Ebony, just for coming on and having a, an amazing conversation that that literally felt like ten minutes. It's been such a pleasure. I'm so grateful for uh, uh, the invitation. And I hope that this is not the last time that we're able to have such a wonderful conversation. Absolutely not, because I'm sure there's going to be more haberdasheries coming from, uh, <laughs> from what's going on in society. So I'll definitely uh, hit you up. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Thank you.